to your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey there. And so we are still continuing in Jeremiah, which we still got a couple weeks left in, but um, hopefully you are seeing patterns and trends and things that stick out to you. Um, and even, dare we say, enjoying Jeremiah. Dare you say it. And so, um, <laughs> and even something Sarah and I were even talking about just before this, uh, the uniqueness of like, it is a, it is a prophetic book and there's plenty of prophetic words in here, but it's also considered narrative and, um, there's probably more narrative than you might've expected mm-hmm. in how it's told. Um, I mean, even more so it, it's so complicated sometimes to talk about narrative versus prophecy because like the, the, the categories of the old Testament, everything after the Torah was actually considered a prophecy, even, even the histories. And so they were fo- always fell under the two categories of the law and the prophets. And so um, it, it's always interesting to try to figure out, all right, how is this classified? And I think sometimes we like classifying things more than they deserve. And so anyways, Jeremiah decides to go buy a field uh, during the siege that's happening and a field in his hometown. And he buys it, he puts his deed in a pot and leaves it with Baruch and, um, and make sure he does all this in front of everyone to kind of learn the lesson that this time in exile is not for forever. Yeah. I, I love this story. I think we just see so clearly Jeremiah's hope. It, he's, he's prophesied that Israel is going to go into exile and that everything is going to be decimated, but he purchases land and keeps the deed on faith, knowing that it will not last forever. And what a good picture for us as believers to remember that we have this Holy Spirit as a deposit and what we are living in right now, which we'll talk about a lot in First Peter, will not last forever. There will be a restoration and we will go home. Yeah, I mean, quite literally, he puts his money where his mouth is. He's been saying, we're going to be restored. And so I'm going to buy this field and show you that I totally believe the words that I'm saying, that we that this, we are going to return back to this land. Yeah. And Jeremiah prays for understanding, uh, which happens a lot. Um, he prays, he praises God for what he's done, but he also acknowledges that they participate the covenant. The Babylonians are going to come. Um and and yet he kind of notes, he kind of points out, like, God, you've instructed me to buy this field. So, I mean, I'm, I'm still hopeful. And Babylon's coming because of this idolatry, but you're going to restore us. Yeah, I think with this prayer for understanding, something we see in Jeremiah that we haven't always seen in other people or other Bible stories is that he continues to come to God for understanding. He doesn't take for granted that God is speaking to him or using him. Continues to, And he continues to humble himself before God and ask for understanding. And always the sprinkles of hope throughout this whole letter. Like mm-hmm. They're going to get restored despite all their flaws. Uh, they're going to restore. Lands are going to be bought again. Deeds are going to be signed. It'll be all good when they return. Yeah, we get this promise of they shall be my people and I will be their God. And we're still, like we talked about last week, in this literary climax of Jeremiah here. So what we can do when we read this is have also a big picture perspective, knowing that we have given been given safety and we are living under this everlasting covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ. God says, I will rejoice in doing them good. And remember that God takes such great pleasure in salvation and delivering his people. And the Lord promises peace, although these houses are going to be filled with dead bodies. It's kind of a pretty grotesque uh, picture, but the God will not hide his face forever. There'll be healing. There'll be prosperity. There'll be security eventually when they get back home. Yeah. Restoration again. I think we see this theme of restoration here. And that's all tied into this promise that there will be this branch. There will be something coming out of the house of David to rule over the people with justice, righteousness, things that we have not seen from any sort of rule for a very, very long time. And um, David's going to have to descend it on the throne. And so certainly... Uh, the New Testament writers make all the connections to Jesus and and point out 
the, the sort of Davidic nature as a Messiah, um, that, that this one comes, uh, Jesus comes as the justice, the just and the righteous one, um, and now reigns forever. Yeah, I see this passage as kind of a rallying cry for us, a cry out to, to remember who you are and remember who God is, even though we don't see it perfectly right now, even we, though we don't understand everything that's happening, we can live with a hope that is stronger than our current circumstances, because we can trust that God is making it and will make it even better than we can imagine. Yep, and then Zedekiah, uh, the king or the ruler, I guess at this time, uh, decides to encourage everybody to release their slaves. Now, whether this is strategic for military use or just simply obeying the Sabbath, it's probably a good thing. They they've probably have not released slaves in the practice that they should have released slaves every seven years. Um, and they release all their slaves, but then eventually everybody suddenly is like, never mind, we're going to take them all back. And they start taking back their slaves again. God is pretty upset about this and actually threatens now to cut them to pieces because of it. Um, but you do find out that Zedekiah in this whole process is not going to die in battle. He'll die in some sense of peace, albeit in exile. Yeah, so we take a little bit of a transition in chapter 34 and we move away from this promise of future renewal and talk now about what it's like in Judah's final days before the exile. Um, talks a lot about God's faithfulness and Judah's infidelity. But we get a little glimpses every now and then of people who are being obedient. It's almost yeah. like um, how Ruth sort of becomes an interjection in the time of the, the judges to be like, look, there are people that are still doing some things well besides Jeremiah. Uh, we hear about these Kenites, which have a long history with Israel. Jethro technically was a Kenite, Moses' father-in-law. Um we hear about them entering the promised land and Joshua. So there's a long, a bit convoluted history of exactly who these people are. But um, it seems early on there were separatists. There was a at least a leader uh, amongst them who told them that that they should not, um, they should have no alcohol policy, that they'd be nomadic people. They were part of the whole tearing down of some of the ball worship in the history of the people. And so they, they have pretty positive history, but it seems like they were obedient, at least to the no alcohol and being nomadic and um and so I think Jeremiah is pointing out, like, look, like these these outsiders, these Gentiles, and maybe they believed in Yahweh, which is likely, but maybe they didn't. But they are obedient at least to the, the, the sort of rules and regulations that uh, their leader had put in, put in place. And and yet these the the Israelites who have Yahweh's law are totally failing to to obey any of it. And so um, Jeremiah is kind of pointing out a picture of obedience through these picture, people as a comparison to the nature of Israel. Yeah, it left me just pausing and praying that I wouldn't take God's free grace for granted, that I would also be somebody who lives out what I believe is true and loves others the way that I'm commanded to, because God is worthy of that, of that sort of sacrifice and conviction and lifestyle change. And Jeremiah is using the obedience of others to kind of spur people on. And I mean, mm-hmm. I think that's helpful in the church too. Sometimes to yeah. tell the stories of going like, look, here's a story of someone's obedience and may, may it inspire you to, to also fault walk it with God too. And Jehoiakim uh, ends up burning the Jeremiah scroll. It's kind of a little bit of a flashback story uh, chronologically, but Jeremiah writes all this stuff down, sends it with Baruch to give to the king uh, to read, and um, Jehoiakim doesn't take too kindly to it and decides to kind of burn things up as he reads them, these little pieces at a time. And uh, Jeremiah ends up telling the whole thing again. He even includes even more this time for Baruch. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great little story. It is kind of a funny story. I feel like you kind of watch it play out like a movie. Uh, and Jeremiah uh, warns Zedekiah. So once again, we're jumping around in time here. Um, 
and it feels a little more connected sometimes these jump arounds don't feel but at least it feels like jeremiah makes a connection for us it's it's like jehoiakim didn't really want to listen to god's word and guess what no one at this time wanted to listen to god's word including zedekiah as well and so um but egypt is drawn away from babylon at this moment and jeremiah once again reminds zedekiah look like just don't get your hopes up that 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 babylon's going to be weaker now even if they come back wounded they're still going to beat us that's what god has commanded so that's what you should expect yeah there's ups and downs but jeremiah is holding fast to the word that god gave him about the fall of israel and so we're reading here about judah's last days before jerusalem falls and during this time when babylon's a little distracted with egypt jeremiah for some reason decides to go claim some property in in benjamin Uh, but while there it gets arrested for like silly things and jeremiah ends up in prison zedekiah has another message for him and zedekiah once again uh Jeremiah's like, you're going to be captured in battle, but you're not going to die. It'll be okay. And Jeremiah's like, but can you please let me out of this prison? And Zedekiah does. He puts him in a nicer prison. Or yeah. basically in minimum security prison with the guard. I think we still keep seeing uh, fulfillment of even Jeremiah in chapter one, where God is like, as long as you have my work to do, then you're going to, like, I'm going to protect you. And so, I mean, Jeremiah's life is not easy. He suffers tremendously, and these prisons are not great. And even, you know, being under guard is not great. But we see God upholding his promise to Jeremiah as well. And some of the leaders seem to think uh, Jeremiah's teaching on surrender is like treason. And so they decided to grab him and throw him into the cistern. And he gets a little muddy, but at least he survives the throw fall. Yeah. And lo and behold, who rescues Jeremiah out of a cistern? But this Ethiopian eunuch, this this foreign Gentile, non-Jew, or maybe he's a Jewish convert, but um, he's, he's a foreigner to the people and um, pulls him out of the pit and puts it Jeremiah ends up back in his little minimum security prison. But I love that the good folks in the story, the, the sort of people that have redeeming value in some of the storytelling are people like those, those Kenites, those outsiders, or like the Ethiopian eunuch who are like the pictures of obedience and showing kind of how God calls people to live. Yeah. And a neat thing about him, his name is Ebed Melik, and it means servant of the king. And so I think there's some wordplay there and that he he may be serving the king of Judah at the time, but we also see him serving Yahweh through delivering Jeremiah. Yeah. I mean, names are always interesting. Like Jeremiah Mm -hmm. means Yahweh will raise, but Zedekiah is the Lord is just. And so like you have these interactions even with these two uh, where their names are like fascinating uh, kind of thematics for, for their the time or kind of the context that they're in. Uh, Zedekiah does come again asking what to do of Jeremiah and Jeremiah once again is like just surrender like this is the will of the Lord don't put up a fight but don't be scared that your own countrymen are going to kill you for it even though they just threw Jeremiah in a pit for saying surrender and at this point Zedekiah is also like okay well let's still try to keep this conversation hush hush I'd rather you not tell everybody uh, that you told me to surrender yeah and Jerusalem falls. Mm-hmm. Zedekiah doesn't exactly surrender. He tries to flee and eventually he's captured, taken to Nebuchadnezzar and his sons and his nobles are put to death and they gouge out his eyes and take him into exile. But back in Jerusalem, just about everything is destroyed. Many are taken to exile. The poor uh, are kind of left behind to kind of tend the grounds in the vineyards, which I, I don't know if that is even a punishment for the poor. I mean, they get Basically they kind of get land. everything. I know. I know. I was thinking about that. I'm like, is this some sort of restitution that God is offering to the poor? Yeah, I, I don't mean, know. The, the, the trajectory of so much of some of the prophets up to this point is pointing out how much the poor get oppressed by the current leadership in Israel. And yet um, now we kind of at least see the poor get to keep the land in some way. Mm-hmm. 
And the Lord delivers uh, Jeremiah. He's given protection. Um, not only that, but uh, Abed-Melech, the Ethiopian, is also uh, given protection amongst the Babylonians. Yeah. And Jeremiah is given this offer to kind of go back to Babylon, pretty well cared for, stay in Jerusalem. And he decides to stay in Jerusalem. And Gedaliah, who's kind of put in charge, seems to have some pretty good history and might be a decent guy. His dad defended Jeremiah back in 26 to, keep, to save Jeremiah's life, basically. Um, his granddad's the one who found the scroll in the temple. So like all positive moments in sort of recent Israel's life. And so um, he's put in charge. And people like him enough that many Judeans actually return back to the land, but they also find out that this random guy named Ishmael is working with this kind of foreign crew and basically wants to kill. Maybe they're just trying to take advantage of the fact that Israel is so weak right now. Um, and get it, get a lie, kind of brushes it off, at least at first. Yeah, it's neat hearing, or it's just interesting, I guess, to see Jeremiah choose to remain in Israel. He's done so much prophesying about going to Babylon, but he chooses to remain. Yeah, uh, but Gedaliah probably should have heeded this advice because Ishmael mm-hmm. does show up and he does die. Um, and and plenty of people get killed. A few people get taken back with Ishmael. Um, and it's interesting because their natural response is the, the people who are left in, in, in Israel are sort of like, okay, Babylon's going to think we did this. like Because some of the Babylonians got killed in the process. Ishmael himself is an Israelite. And so I think there's a, there's a worry right now that the Babylonians are going to do something. And so they just, they want to go flee to Egypt, but before they go, they're going to talk to Jeremiah, but we'll get to that next week. Yeah. Um, do you kind of feel like you're watching a movie, like maybe like a horror movie where the person always does the wrong thing and you want to shout, don't do it right before, you know, they (laughs) open a door or something like that, or like go into the woods by themselves. That's kind of what it's like as we watch them prepare to go to Egypt. Well, God has told them, (laughs) don't "Don't do do it. it. (laughs) Multiple times up to this point, there seems to be a lot of warning that they should not go down to Egypt or work (laughs) with Egypt. Whatever you do, don't go to Egypt. And they're like, how about we go to Egypt? That warning just to be forewarned, will not end next week. Uh, you will keep hearing that they should not go to Egypt. All right, uh, jumping into First Peter uh, chapter 2. Uh, and so just to remember, the previous two, two verses were more or less a transition point to this moment, that they are to keep their conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable and what it looks like to live as sojourners and exiles, as Peter just said. And so um, part of that is being good citizens, respect your local authorities, and, and they are there to keep the peace. Now, I, I think there could be a limit to this, and I think it's a more complicated question, but as long as they don't violate the direct command of Scripture, you obey them and mm-hmm. and, and show honor, um, a, a concept often lost on us in the West, but this honor to authority, the, even if they're not always the most honorable. Um, mm-hmm. But you treat them yeah. with dignity, you love your spiritual family, you revere God, respect the government, and function that way. And I think there's some instructions on slaves and servants here and obeying your masters, even the bad ones. And, um, and, and we've already covered on this podcast, some of the, the differences between ancient slavery and uh, American chattel slavery. But, um, but I love that Peter kind of does something and he does it a few times in, in this week, but if you disobey and you got punished for it, well, Sorry, that's on you. But um, if you do no wrong and are still abused, guess what? God God has your back. God still sees those things. And actually, and this is once again something Peter does multiple times in this section, you're living like Christ in that moment who also didn't do any wrong, and yet the authorities over him beat him and crucified him. And yet he never retaliated. He trusted his father would redeem it. And so be like that if you're a servant in a household. 
Yeah, I feel like in every single thing we're going to read today, Peter's like, back it up. Look at the eternal perspective. Look at Christ and what, how he modeled this example. So we start by looking at submission in difficult circumstances or situations. And right now we're talking about authorities or masters and slaves. He says, before you decide how you're going to do this, look at how Christ did it and make your decision based on that. And Christ was willing to suffer injustice. And so we can do that too. Yep. And then we could teach our wives and husbands and as always in teachings like this, like to cover it in a couple sentences on a podcast, there's so much nuance there's so many disclaimers and there's so many things that need to be mm-hmm. said yeah. um, that we, we won't dive in. Maybe we'll dive into this after the podcast or something. I don't know, but uh, we're not going to dive in as we sort of do these summaries. Um, but it's also important to think through like you had complicated questions in households where um, let's say a, a woman converted and she's married to her husband and not only that, but, one person converting to a new religion in a household, usually the man would convert and the whole household would. The idea that a, a woman would accept Jesus as their savior, but maybe not their husband. Like there's so many new questions that had to be asked or um, should they leave their husband? Like questions that Paul has to deal with in Corinth too. Should they leave their husband? How is that behavior going to be put, played out? Like do, do we treat, now that we have this egalitarian access to Jesus, do we treat like that in a household? What does that look like? And so they had to process through all these questions. And so I think Peter's helping them answer some of these questions in, in ways that make sense in their context. Um, and so, yeah, like I said, I don't know if we're going to parse out all those things. I think there's you get into grounds of abuse and complicated things related to that that we don't want to give people permission for. Um but I think some of it is not that unsimilar to governance too, where it's like, look, like when, when the government over you disobeys like the law itself, then, then that's where some of the changes of, of where you show honor, where you show obedience, that, 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 that becomes in some ways out in those moments. Yeah. I, I think ultimately here, the call or the command is to focus on your heart. Because a life submitted to God is going to look like a life of submitting to others and serving others. And I think when we read passages like this, we need to be very careful not to put our own framework or definitions on this passage. So gentle and quiet means coming under the authority of God, exercising God's strength under God's control with an inner peace and an inner steadiness. And even weaker vessel here can oftentimes be looking at at the physical or even cultural or societal power or influence men had over women. And the command here is to honor them rather than take advantage or abuse them. Yeah. And I think there's an idea of more peaceable than anything else, which right. is not, which is not necessarily like, um, not speaking. Uh, I don't think that idea of quietness versus, uh, somebody that's not easily stirred into anger, easily stirred up into certain situations that, um, that, that, are not reflective at times of probably the fruit of the spirit. And so, um, yeah, things like that. Yeah. And then we do get instructions of don't define beauty externally. The inner disposition certainly trumps the outer appearance. Um, and so, um, and it's not anti any sort of externality, but it better not be the main thing. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's just, um, a reminder and, and a reminder that God's design for, for marriage has been since even the beginning. And, um, yeah, it's far back. And this isn't a new thing that even Abraham and Sarah uh, lived out at least pictures at times of, of this marriage picture. And the husband and husbands are given instruction too. And I think this is even more the cultural shock for the people listening that they're told to honor their wife, which was not 
a phrase that uh, people would have thought of related to to wives, the mm-hmm. idea of honoring the, the, the woman. Um, and the phrase also includes the feminine one uh, as opposed to wife there. Um, and, and I think that helps us also understand maybe what Peter means with the weaker vessel. I think there could be a, a larger catch-all. Um, and, and some of the physical dominance also plays into cultural dominance. Uh, but um, this idea that, I mean, the same reason why I can walk down the street at night and not think twice about it when Sarah or other women certainly tell the stories of walking down the streets and ice with their keys in their hands, ready, ready to, to fight back if needed. That, that idea of, um, there, there's a, there's a physical presence that men have that also gets coerced into other forms of power, um, that, that the idea of weaker might be tied into. But the lens through, through which we should view this is the theme of the book, which is around suffering yeah. and Christ's suffering. So if you have some time, flip back to it and read this section in the context of everything else around it that Peter's talking about, which is this idea of suffering for the sake of righteousness. Yeah. Yeah. Even when a husband and wife is not how you desire them always to be. Right. Um, and and the husbands are once again reminded, too, that, that their wives are like a sister, like a co-heir. Uh, with them and and their own prayer life has an intimate connection to their obedience and honoring and uh, valuing their wife and so um in a way that carries weight that that doesn't exist in the reverse scenario and so um husbands who listen to this like how you love and honor your wife has effect according to god on your prayer life and so um live obediently there's sort of almost like a threat given to disobedience in this area mm-hmm um, and once again, we continue with that idea of suffering. Um, and the encouragement is to be unified, show compassion, love each other. Uh, even if someone wrongs you, don't push back. Find right. a way to bless them. But in the midst of this, this is going to be difficult. And it, But it won't go unnoticed. God still sees these things. And if you do good, who could fault you for that? And, and it's Christ who suffered and died for the unjust. So if you suffer because of something unjust, you're living the story of Christ with your life. Mm-hmm. And he even compares it to Noah and sort of this idea that like they were saved from judgment and suffering and, and eight of them were saved in that story for, by water from the water and you too are being saved. So in the midst of the suffering, by your baptism, like you, in the resurrection of Jesus, you will be delivered. So your suffering, even if temporary, uh, it's not the final verdict. I think this section is summed up really well through verse 17, which says it's better to suffer for doing good according to God's will. Again, Peter is drawing our hearts and our minds to Christ. We have a really strong sense of justice in our culture. And Peter kind of says, so what if it's unjust? Christ suffered injustice first. Your job is to trust God and his work, seek unity and be a blessing so that you can experience blessing. Now, again, this doesn't mean we should neglect other issues of injustice. And we've talked so much, especially through the Old Testament of how important it is to stand up for those who are being treated unjustly. But as we as Christians experience injustice, we've got to have an accurate perspective around it. Yeah. And, and Peter still helps us to, to have that lesson that we've learned from Paul too, of in your suffering, like, look at this as refining, like this is weaning you from those old sinful ways. And you're going to have people around you from your old life that, that are not going to understand it. They're, they might even despise you for your new way of living, but you've been called to live differently. And, and remember, like, this this world may end really, really soon. Peter definitely has this imminence idea here, which a lot of the New Testament writers did, and uh, probably from the information that they had on their day, probably felt like Jesus is coming any minute. And But the principle still still applies. Like, we should live as Jesus is returning soon, whether that will happen or not. And that's Peter's encouragement here of going like, so therefore make all your purposes, like all the things you do for God, like whether you speak, whether you serve, whether you have gifting, do it all for God, because you don't know how long this is going to be. And so, 
live for him and start being more and more like that as you sort of suffer. And looking at Christ's suffering, we remember that since he suffered while he was human, we should be prepared to do the same. Sometimes this is going to look like things out of our control, and other times it will look like resisting sin even when others around us are doing it. So instead of embracing the sin, we are to live out the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. And a lot of that is exemplified. The fruit of that is in loving others well. Your love looks like showing hospitality and using your gifts, not for yourself, but in service to one another. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, we're reminded to sort of in our sufferings that, that we shouldn't think that God has abandoned us or that it's haphazard. But we also need to be careful not to conflate suffering because of your own sins with all forms of suffering. Mm-hmm. Like they are not the same. So if you've messed up your own life and you're suffering, that's not necessarily exactly the same as Jesus's form of suffering. But if there's suffering, it's because you're being a faithful believer and you're living out your life and you're speaking the truth and people are um, making your life harder because of that, that's way different. And that's where you're more like Christ. That's where um, it, it's more Christ-like in how you're living. Yeah. And rejoice when you're, when you suffer because you are sharing with Christ in his suffering and the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. That's, that's a good word. That's a good verse to remember. And even just the imagery of the idea of the spirit of glory and of God resting on you is super powerful. Then we get a bit of a transition uh, of Peter going, hey, as a fellow elder, let me instruct a few of you elders that you're to be good shepherds because God is the real true good shepherd. And and so as you shepherd, do it as a desire to please God, not for self-game. And you're not to be domineering, but live by your very example of how you live it out. Um, And God, as a good shepherd, will see how you do. Like that is your compulsion uh, as a, as a shepherd. Yeah. Um, and then there's no under those under the care of the shepherds and the call from Peter here is like to do, to live under that authority with humility, which is the same thing true of governance and marriage. Um, and speaking of humility, he just kind of makes the transition, live all of your life in humility towards God because he's the one who actually cares for you. So all those things come from him. So quit thinking it comes from you and live humbly and stay aware. Know you have an enemy, the devil, don't let him have any footholds, any chance he might have to infiltrate the church or bear fault upon the church. He's going to try to take. So don't give the devil an inch in your suffering. Don't give the devil any room. So your suffering is going to be temporary, but life with Christ will be forever. I think, again, we're asked to have a good perspective here. The elders need an eternal perspective, serving God as they serve the church and not seeking their own gain. And we are to be humble as well, trusting God and trusting our elders um, as we leave our anxieties and our futures of our faith with God. When we suffer, we are not alone. There is a unifying experience in suffering that we are to receive with joy. And we can trust it always begins and ends with Christ. He will restore. He will confirm. He will strengthen and establish us. And because of that, all glory goes to him. And so Peter reminds me sending this letter with Sylvanus or Silas and Peter um, has been direct as he can. And he says the church that he's with in exile, which is the she, I think in the story greets them as well as Mark, who's likely Peter's traveling companion, uh, which we have talked about a little bit when we talked about uh, the gospel of Mark. And so, um, yeah, it's kind of just wrapped up pretty, pretty nicely in a nice little bow. Yeah. Final thoughts. So Peter's letters feel very different to me than Paul's. They feel more cyclical than I thought when I'd studied them before and almost reminded me a little bit more of James and or John even in their cyclical sort of arguments or discussions. But Peter's theme of suffering is very, very clear. 
the idea and perspective that Peter brought of suffering was really powerful to me in a different way. I think previously I had stopped at chapter one where he has a sort of summary statement around suffering and really embrace that. But I like how he keeps going and following that theme as he gets practical and then, you know, kind of goes abstract, but then comes back to the practical, but all of that through the lens of suffering. So I really loved it. I'm, I'm adding it to my short list of books to go back and study really in depth when we're done with the two-year Bible. Yeah, yeah. Peter, Peter definitely stands apart from, particularly the, the last few Paul books we re- re- we read, like uh, Romans and Ephesians and Colossians, and um, where Paul lays out the gospel, then works through the practical applications. And Peter definitely has, yeah, has a one track mind around <laughs> suffering in this letter. Um, and, and I love that this is Peter who was quick to action, ready to fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, denying Jesus, struggling to get the right things all the time or say the right things. And the Holy Spirit's clearly done a work on him where he's teaching him, like, don't fight back against those who would seek to bring you suffering, but endure. Use your words thoughtfully. Speak hope to people. Be ready to give a good defense. And God's just done this work, which is a, a, tes- a testament and, and a good thing, like – most of us, where we start in the faith, like, are not going to be where we end up, and God's going to continue to do a sanctifying work. And albeit, it might be a while, it might be long, it might be arduous, but that God continues to do that work of transforming us more and more into His glory. And not only that, but like, I really appreciated sort of the practicals of this, like the instructions to this church in the midst of suffering and persecution, marginalization. It's simple, and it's a simple same instructions to us. Be good citizens, have good marriages, show mm-hmm. honor to those in authority, and be willing to suffer for your allegiance to Jesus. And um, I think even more and more so as sort of uh, the church moves further into the margins and maybe stands very distinct from the culture, I think these still, things still hold true, that we would uh, interact with the world with some of these things as well and understand that there might be growing um, suffering and marginalization and uh, attacks that come upon Christians and the church and we should count it all as as being more like Christ in the process. Yeah, great. Psalm 119, or at least the very end of this very long psalm. I know, we've been reading Psalm 119 in a lot of different sections, but this one ends so beautifully, and it feels like it's just the final sprint to the finish. The author here is just desperate and yet peaceful, celebrating the power of the Word of God, but continue requests like begging that God would be with him and God would help him. Yeah, it's it's interesting to sort of find yeah that final kind of line and and I think the final I've gone astray like a lost sheep seek your servant and do not forget and um yeah it, it's so fitting after so much of of what this author has said about God's word that he's basically like I'm prone to wander and I really need your help Psalm thirty three. Yeah. It made me think of you know it talks all about like the earth and it made me think of this Abraham Cooper quote that says Kuiper how do you Kuiper there we go Uh, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all does not cry mine made me think of that theme how the earth is all God's yep Uh, it's a good one that's one of Kuiper's most famous Um, and then Psalm 33 yeah the psalmist really feels like he moves from this very cosmic idea and very narrows in as he keeps going and writing. And eventually God is the same one who made all of humanity, but also the God sees each one of us. And he's looking even more specifically for people that fear him and keep his steadfast love. And so um, it's, it's moving from the cosmic God to the individual God who's looking for people that are obedient. Mm-hmm. Proverbs 10. So we move here into the Proverbs of Solomon and we see a lot of comparison between the righteous and the wicked. It really encourages me to endure to the end, even when it's tempting to seek out temporary satisfaction. And there were some convicting words around um, our language and the power it has for sure in this in this chapter. Yeah, yeah. This almost felt like we should have read this as a companion to James, but 
there were other proverbs about words that we also read, but uh, like things like the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence and the wise store up knowledge, but the mouth of the fool invites ruin. And um, just so many things about how we use our words and how we speak um, and, and good instructions on, on heeding discipline and things like that as well. Yeah. And in Psalm 55, at yeah. least the tail end section of, of Psalm we've read last week, I think. Yeah, I think so. And I, last week I was like, I don't like where we ended because the next line is a but. <laughs> so we get to get to that. Finally, we get to pick up where we left off. David was betrayed by a friend and was struggling, but he puts his trust in God. No matter what the burden, we can cast it on the Lord and he will sustain us. Yeah, the psalmist is fully confident uh, that God will deal with the one who betrayed as well as uh, provide sustenance through the suffering that the psalmist is writing. So next week. So in Jeremiah, we're going to broaden out a little bit and look at some more judgment on different nations. So pay attention to the different nations, which specific nations, and think about what you've learned in places like Egypt or Moab or Ammon in previous readings. I know you may not remember all of them. I don't remember all of them. <laughs> but, you know, there's a reason that this is a two-year plan. You should have time to look it up and do yeah. some research. Bust out the maps. It's always helpful, too. Yeah. And then Hebrews, you guys, this is my favorite book in the New Testament, I think. Uh, at least today it is. Um, it's going to be really rich to read because we've spent time studying the Old Testament law, because we've looked at Moses and Melchizedek and all these things. So do the work of making the connections that the author is making with Jesus as the, as the better Moses or Abraham or any of those things. It's just so good. Yeah, because we've had so many things already set up, it becomes good now to read the book of Hebrews. Mm-hmm. We, we're not we're not reading it more blind as if we don't know all the pieces. Um, yeah, for me, the Old Testament, uh, imagine... I mean, as you read through, imagine you're an Israelite who has just heard so many messages in Jeremiah about how Babylon is going to come and take the country. Babylon is going to destroy the temple. It's going to lead people into captivity. There's nothing you could do. You just need to surrender. And you've just heard this over and over and over and over and over in Jeremiah. And then there's finally like, and Babylon's finally going to see their day. And it's like spelled out. Um, you just haven't heard much of that yet. You, you kind of knew that there was an end to it. But now we're finally going to get a description of like Babylon will truly see some ruin. And it's going to be really bad for Babylon. Mm-hmm. And just what that would feel like to finally feel that like, oh, this country that's going to slaughter many and take us into captivity. Oh, they're going to get their due. And so, um, yeah, it's probably probably heartwarming for them to really hear this. And then in the New Testament, as you read through Hebrews, yes, there's so many pictures of how Jesus is the better version of the things before. Um, so as you read each section, as you're introduced to a new concept, see how the author is making the argument of like, well, how is Jesus the better version of rest or of the temple or of Moses or of even angels and all these sort of ideas. Mm-hmm. And so um, just just try to unpack like how is Jesus the better version of that? Yeah, that's it. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Thank you.